Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, the Chief Executive here and a proud member. And today we're presenting our first virtual City Club Youth Forum. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank AT&T, the Shar and Chuck Fowler Foundation, the William M. Weiss Foundation, they sponsor all of our youth forums, as well as our generous members, sponsors, and donors who have been supporting all of our virtual forums. For a full list, you can check it out at cityclub.org slash thank you. And if you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. Now I'm going to turn it over to Jane Jesko. She's a member of our Youth Forum Council and she's going to introduce the forum. Jane? Thank you, Dan. April 22nd, 2020 marks the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day, a countrywide day of protest that is credited with launching the modern environmental movement. In the last five decades, Earth Day has grown from a grassroots effort into an international event celebrated in 192 countries, moving environmentalism from a fringe issue to a mainstream concern. While most Earth Day events are virtual this year due to the spread of the coronavirus, the theme is the same, how we can collectively address the challenges and opportunities of climate change. While threats posed by climate change aren't new, what is new is the leadership role young people are playing in demanding solutions. Today, City Club Youth Forum Council member Jessica Chang will lead a panel of local experts in a discussion on the plans and programs in place to help future generations combat and adapt to climate change. As in every City Club Forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them to at City Club Youth. We'll work them in. Joining us today are Emily Baca, Communications Director for the Ohio Environmental Council, Tori McMillan, Director for the Center of Sustainability at Hathaway Brown, and Philina A. Selden, Outreach and Education Liaison in the Office of Sustainability for the City of Cleveland. I now turn the forum over to our moderator, Jessica Chang. She's a junior at Hathaway Brown and a member of our Youth Forum Council. All right, thanks for the introduction, Jane. Um, so as she mentioned, we're one week away from Earth Day. Um, every year, about a billion people participate in this across 190 countries, but today, um, we're focusing a little bit more on the local side of climate change. So I want to ask this forum, uh, begin this forum by asking, um, what are the biggest environmental challenges our community faces in Cleveland and in Northeast Ohio? Well, I could start with some of them. I'm sure um, Emily and Felina have others that they'll add. But I think some of the big changes we're anticipating seeing and we're already seeing are um, more severe storms, which lead to flooding situations and also um, contribute to runoff and potential sewage overflows that then cause algae blooms in the lakes in Lake Erie. Um, and then the warmer temperatures that we're going to see and are seeing um, that keep the lake temperature warmer also exacerbate those algae blooms. Yeah, and I would add that there's a pollution, overpopulation, depletion of our natural resources, loss of biodiversity, deforestation, excuse me, um, water pollution, urban sprawl, and public health challenges. And if I could hop on to that uh, public health challenges. So uh, Tori discussed a little bit about, you know, increasing uh, temperatures that we're seeing, and those really can uh, degrade air quality, which is what Selena mentioned on, and those can uh, pose problems uh, for those who have asthma or who have other lung issues. Uh, same thing with uh, more extreme weather events and more precipitation events, so heavier rainfalls, more frequent rainfalls uh, that do cause some of those combined sewer overflow issues or runoff issues. Uh, those are impacting uh, the water that uh, we that we drink from and the water that we recreate in and uh, there's uh, that public health aspect as well and uh, another one that's a little more icky but uh, I think is worth mentioning is that we have warmer winters so we're not seeing uh, a number of the pests die off every winter so we're seeing upticks in uh, things like Lyme disease uh, which can be a really a real public health risk as well. I might add with the warmer temperatures as well and then not seeing as much freeze over in the winter. We saw a really interesting thing this winter. Um, it was tragic for Geneva on the lake that because the ice didn't form, the shoreline wasn't protected from the wave action and they lost like 45 feet of shoreline like backwards um, and people's homes were actually 
either having to be moved or we're falling into the lake in Geneva on the lake. So obviously there's a lot of challenges that we're facing, um, but in May 2019, um, I'm sure some of you are aware, the Carbon Disclosure Project graded almost 600 cities around the world on how they're handling the climate crisis. I mean, Cleveland actually received an A, so it was one of 43 cities that did so for cutting emissions and climate strategies. Um, so I want to know how are Cleveland's local government and local organizations responding to the climate crisis and what strategies have made Cleveland one of the most effective cities when it comes to dealing with this? Um, I'm going to start with Felina and then if you want to join in. I kind of figured I'd go first on this one. Uh, in 2017, Mayor Jackson joined 400 climate mayors across the country and reaffirmed his commitment to climate action with the update of the 2013 Climate Action Plan. With this plan, Mayor Jackson has been able to demonstrate how the city has reduced carbon pollution um, while growing the economy, improving our water and air quality. We've garnered recognition for solar and wind energy and added more than 70 miles of bike infrastructure. Um, we've launched a bike and scooter share program and the implementation of the Cleveland Tree Plant. Um, but with the Cleveland Climate Action Plan, we have five areas of focus or five focus areas energy efficiency, clean energy, sustainable transportation, sustainable, um, uh, clean water, sorry, and vibrant green spaces, uh, more local food, less waste, and then the cross-cutting priorities. Those cross-cutting priorities, um, specifically one, is our racial equity tool, and that's a tool that can be used prior to making decisions related to policy, planning, programming, and budgeting within city government and other um, that look to advance racial equity and share prosperity. Um, I invite everyone that's watching to learn more about our climate action plan by going to sustainablecleveland.org forward slash climate action and you'll be able to see more. I think one of the things that I was most struck by in the update to the Cleveland Climate Action Plan was the real uh, focus on resident engagement and mm -hmm. partnerships uh, to help develop that plan. And I think it speaks to the, the racial equity piece, certainly, uh, but the equity piece in general. And uh, I think that, you know, when you had 300 resident leaders and 90 members of that uh, committee join in to help help propose solutions that really is um, that's really commendable and it's really important uh, because the residents have a say and have ownership in uh, making those climate actions real. Yeah, I think the partnerships idea is huge also in Cleveland. Um, the partnerships between the Cleveland Foundation, the Gunn Foundation, the city government and local businesses have been really pretty impressive. One of the ones that comes to mind that got me really excited when I saw it was um, the Cleveland Climate Fund or C Climate Action Fund, which is funneled, it's a donor advised fund at the Cleveland Foundation that individuals can contribute to. And then um, the funds from that go to community groups that apply for grants to do climate actions in their communities. So it's like local people helping local people make local change, um, which I think is really cool. Um, and then going back to that public health crisis you were mentioning, um, so one of the biggest problems with this crisis is factors like air quality and pollution are really affecting children and teenagers in the Cleveland area. So what specifically are some programs that are helping to reduce these effects? So there was a study published by the Ohio Environmental Council and Policy Matters Ohio last year that specifically looked at those climate change impacts on children's health in the state of Ohio uh, that I highly recommend folks uh, take a look at and I can post it later as well for, for people to, to dive in on. And so what, what they're really looking at is um, policy solutions to those health issues uh, and kind of Overall, there's the reducing of greenhouse gas emissions and reducing air pollution from cars and trucks. One of the ones that I uh, feel very excited about because I was on the ground helping work on this for a while is reforesting Ohio cities, specifically, um, specifically the city of Cleveland, known as the forest city at one point in time. Uh, and if I could dig in on that for just a second, 
you know, the planting of trees and the keeping of, uh, the keeping of trees that are full grown is really important because they are helping uh, reduce temperatures on high heat days. So they're helping reduce mm -hmm. what many call the uh, urban heat island effect. So they're cooling that ground. Uh, they're helping filter the air to make that air cleaner to breathe for folks. Uh, and uh, they're, really, uh, they're really helping with our mental health too. And so I think that that's one of, the, one of the really cool local policies is diving in on the Cleveland tree plan and, uh, and investing in that to help address climate change and also address the impacts of climate change on health. Another thing, and I think this is housed within the OEC, is a group called Clinicians for Climate Action um, that has been taking action at the state level, um, going down to Columbus and trying to advocate for policies at the state level that will support action that, to address some of these public health concerns that come out of the climate crisis. Um, so I think it's, it's exciting to see different kinds of groups mobilizing politically to try to get the changes we need and I think just uh, just as residents are really and really critical pieces to developing climate solutions, um, the Ohio Clinicians for Climate Action are really great messengers on that as well. They're trusted messengers related to health and climate. I think there's also the ad of the Ohio Native Plant Month is this month. Earth Day's 50th anniversary is um, in April, sorry, in April. And Arbor Day is the last Friday in April. And uh, those are ways that people, if they don't know about those events, they can get involved and learn more. All right. Um, and then this is, I guess, first for Emily. Um, what are the, some of the biggest challenges um, and biggest gaps in our climate strategies right now? Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, I'm lucky that I get to work with a number of policy experts every day that really get to dig in on this. Uh, from my perspective, I think that um, we need to be acting at all levels of government. And additionally, we each need to be acting on climate. So I think uh, sometimes there can be gaps in those strategies, but we're able to plug in in different ways. Uh, and so our local governments might be able Cleveland is a great example to really dig in and say, we're going 100% renewable and um, we're gonna act on climate at our local level. So I think there, um, there are some, some gaps in kind of climate action at the federal level right now for sure. Um, and, and maybe even at our state house level too, but locals are leading the way on that. So I see that as a really great strategy as we're moving forward. But knowing that we need to, we need to influence uh, climate strategy at um, at all levels, and I think that one of the ways I see that happening is uh, electing climate champions into office. So uh, I hope that we can dig in a little bit on that. A healthy environment is made possible by a healthy democracy, uh, and uh, especially those those climate champions in office. I'd like to chime in and say I think adding mindfulness and responsibility. Um, are really key to getting people to participate in understanding how to mitigate climate change. When we have people who look at what they bring into their homes as opposed to what they take out of their homes by producing waste, we create a more equitable and fair planet and treatment of the planet. We respect each other more in, our, in the things that we have, mostly the natural environment versus the built environment. And uh, if we, challenge each other to really say, do we really need this? Is it really necessary? Before we go about our daily lives of acquiring things, I think it will help. Um, at this time, I just want to remind listeners that they can text their questions to 330-541-5794 or tweet them to at City Club Youth. Um, and then pop back in for one second. I wanna, I wanna jump on to, in terms of climate strategy, a little bit of what Tori was talking about uh, when it comes to collaboration between um, not just our public sector, but our private sector as well, and uh, where businesses can jump in and where individuals can jump in and really, uh, really help drive some of those decisions. Uh, mm -hmm. So just wanted to highlight that. 
Um, and then Felina, you mentioned the Sustainable Cleveland Initiative in 2019 um, and the priority, the cross-cutting priority on social and racial equality. So how does climate change intersect with social and racial equality and what are some strategies in place that help tackle both of these issues? Oh, um, you're muted. Uh, there are a number of ways that, that they intersect. Right now we're finding that because of the because of climate change and health disparities, people who are actually experiencing COVID-19 are um, experiencing it in a worse way than, than others. So that's one very obvious, very scientifically based way that things have been pointed out. Other ways are, are just that our crops are gonna grow um, and they might not be as strong this year because we've got climate change. Um, our, our need to, to look into joining uh, community-supported agriculture to support the local economy and local farmers because now we have uh, lots of surplus for people who aren't able to go and pick things. So maybe we should go out there and, and try to help out with that as well. There, I mean, there, there are a number of different, very layered and complex ways, but it's really something as simple as what can I do to make sure I participate and do my part. I, th I think I would add that climate change is often referred to as the great multiplier of impact. Mm -hmm. So people who are already disadvantaged or at risk in some way, whether it's health risks or economic risk, right, that they don't have the same resources, climate change usually exacerbates whatever risks they're already facing in terms of stability in their lives. Um, so I think you could take it any direction and say, there's probably a climate layer to whatever sort of disadvantage a group may have um, because it tends to multiply those risks. All right. Often systemic too. So mm -hmm. it's, there's, a, there's a history there that um, climate change is adding on that layering effect that Tori just talked about. Yeah, and there's the, so there's air pollution, there's um, human health, human impact, individuals who face a higher mortality rate um, especially when you compare it to or connect it with uh, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've already talked a bit about what individuals can do, but specifically for teenagers, um, what can we do? Because you know, climate change is a reality we, we will have to face as adults. Um, so what can youth in Cleveland do to help improve the environment, um, Tori? You know, I think people can do the individual actions that we often talk about, right? You can try to figure out where you can walk and ride your bike instead of taking a car ride. You can try to eat local foods, um, reduce, as Felina was talking about, like what's coming into your house, being mindful of what you actually need versus what you just kind of want or would, you know, maybe it's an impulse purchase or whatever it is. Um, but I think one of the things we don't talk about as often with youth, but we're seeing a great resurgence of or a great like, it's really coming to the forefront now with people like Greta Thunberg and um, is political activism. You know, just because youth don't have a vote right now doesn't mean that they don't have a voice. Um, and so one of the things I talk about with my students is thinking about where are your spheres of influence and trying to think about like who can I influence and how can I influence them? Because your voice is probably the most powerful tool you have right now. Um, for making changes, whether it's in writing to senators or writing letters, letters to the editor, um, right? Like newspapers will publish those. Um, or if it's the, like, you know, your pastor at your church or your rabbi at your temple, and they have a voice that can amplify yours, right? Like figuring out how to amplify your voice through the sort of spheres of influence that you have. Well, I would also add that we should include and expose youth. As long as we include and expose youth to not only the jobs we have, the opportunities that are available, and to what we know about what we know about and have them build upon sustainability, climate change, environmental work, expose them to fields that also touch on environmental work, and encourage them to, like you said, to speak up and to make themselves heard, but also to make room for that. Because so many times we just assume that because people are young, they don't have experience, they don't have knowledge, or they aren't interested, and it couldn't be further from the truth, which is why in the city we have the Youth Sustainability Leadership Program, and we also have the Mayor's Youth um, Summer Employment Program. And then those two areas 
There are um, a lot of kids doing great work in sustainability, environmental work, and, and across the board. It also introduces them to public administration and the jobs that can be found so that we have our replacements because all of us are gonna get older and retire and we're gonna need a whole new workforce to come in, so, yeah. And I would say too that we need that, that talent right now. Uh, and uh, I've been really grateful to work with uh, interns in a number of my different roles. So being an intern myself, but then also, uh, also working with interns who have really uh, helped shape the way that I'm thinking about our, our new environmental movement in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that uh, there's, there's power in using your voice and there's power in action. And um, I'm reminded in kind of researching the 50th anniversary of Earth Day that uh, the first Earth Day only brought together 10% of the U.S. population. 10% is a lot, but uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily sound, that percentage sounds pretty small. Um, but they, they came together to demand action and it was organized uh, organized by a, a young person at the time, 20-something, but still young. And uh, right after that, we saw the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. So um, I'm really hopeful, especially now, uh, with so many of the youth climate movements that are out there uh, and the voices that they're, they're raising and the, um, really the changes that they are demanding, uh, which I think are, uh, they're bold and they're important and we should be listening and uh, making change along with. We can, we can accomplish great things together. Can I jump in one more time? Um, I would sort of echo that idea of the collective work also, that there are so many groups that are, have formed and are, the voice becomes more powerful when you join a group. There's some really interesting research that people who are concerned about the environment tend to not be joiners. Um, and we need to join together. So I would encourage youth to find a group that matches with the way they're thinking, right? There are lots of different groups out there, whether it's um, the Sunrise Movement or the Youth Climate Strikes or Citizens Climate Lobby. Like there are lots of different ones that are working in different ways and you find the group that matches sort of your personality and style and belief um, to move things forward. Um, so I want to touch on that a bit because at the same time as there's been like this rising wave of youth um, climate activism, like with Greta Thunberg or Jamie Margolin, there's also been a corresponding uh, rise in the levels of apathy and inaction. So it's not necessarily people who deny climate change, but simply people who don't act um, upon it. So how do you respond to something like that? I, uh, Climate change is big and scary, and uh, I think that that can be a deterrent uh, at certain points in time. Uh, I was thinking back and preparing for today's forum on uh, my high school experience, and I was talking about climate change, and everyone blew me off. <laughs> um, it was not a thing to talk about, uh, but I think it's the way you communicate that, right? And so there are the, there's absolutely the science behind climate change and the actions that we need to be taking to mitigate its impacts. Uh, but maybe instead of talking about the big scary idea of climate change, let's talk about some of those individual actions that we can be taking together to help inspire smaller actions. Um, at least that's the way that I, I look at it. Having uh, worked in the environmental field for a couple of years now, um, it's, it, it, there can be some tough days when you think about the impacts of climate change every day. So where can you find those moments of hope? Where can you find those moments of um, small action that we can be taking together? And the piggyback off of what Emily said, I wholeheartedly believe in pointing out the things that people are already doing. When I talk about sustainability, I talk about the fact that people use dishes every day, that they walk to places, a lot of people take the bus already. Um, that people eat leftovers and people may not seem to think that that or may not believe that that's a, a participate, participating action, but it is because you're not creating another meal, you're creating a new meal out of something you already have or just enjoying something that you already have. Um, I always use the analogy of a watermelon because a watermelon represents the present in terms of what you have to eat right now, but when you cut it up and you store it for later, it represents the 
having something for later, right? But then you talk about how do you perpetuate that and keep it going, and we talk about the seeds and what does what do seeds need? And the seed the seeds need clean soil, clean air, clean water, and someone that nurtures and cares for it in order to have more watermelon later. And and so when we talk about what people can do and why some people might not feel like they're connected when you connect it to something that they can tangibly understand and see and, and actually participate in and know that it's not just about my actions, what I do now, it's what I do in the future, and it's what I can do even further down the line to keep this thing we call life as we know it going. You have people who are more inclined to participate and that's the joy that you can find not just in yourself, but all around you with everyone to share. It does get more fun when you do it together, right? Mm -hmm. So like the hope increases because you start to feel like you're not the only one who cares. Um, so I think that that piece of like finding your people is important. And then I think when you talk about the idea of our voice being our most powerful tool for a lot of, um, for a lot of youth, having just a voice isn't enough. So my last question um, for this forum would be asking the older generations who hold the economic and social and political power to actually do things, why is it so hard to change? I don't know if I wanna take that one, no I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I think change is scary. It's scary to everyone and because it's not knowing what's on the other side, but that's when you have faith and you have a support group and when you are working collectively and you have people who will not only support you but encourage you to move forward. So that goes back to what Toria was speaking about. I think it's hard to, change is hard also because we get comfortable. I sort of like what you were saying, Felina, right? Like there's a comfort um, particularly if we aren't feeling the impacts directly in our own lives, it's hard to motivate out of what we have that's comfortable right now in anticipation of something that's coming. Um, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, but I feel like I have to, because the COVID virus has so many sort of layers of like speed up the climate crisis into like this very compact moment in time and what can we learn? Um, and we can learn all sorts of things, right? That like, if you act quickly, that's something you can anticipate is coming. You can make that thing much, much less severe, right? Like we did it here, we're doing it right now in Ohio. Like we're, we've succeeded at that. Um, so it's sort of that same idea of like, we can, we can act now, but it's hard to get people to motivate into that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think there are a lot of entrenched interests that are hard to, that hold power, that are hard to shift um, because they have power, that we need to sort of make changes in certain industries and sectors and ways of doing things. Um, and that's hard when the people in power are connected to those entrenched interests. I, I second that. I think that there, um, it is difficult to shift those who are comfortable and those who are in power. Um, and I, I would say too that uh, collaboration is, is not always easy. And um, I think that that is, uh, you know, we talk a lot about collaboration and the need for collaboration on a number of different issues and climate is no different. We need to be collaborating across sectors. We need to be collaborating across neighborhoods. We need to be uh, collaborating for those climate solutions. And that's, that's sometimes difficult and that requires giving up power and that requires stepping out of your comfort zone and kind of leaning into the to that growing edge and I think that it also um, it also requires us to take a look at the past which is um, not always easy to do and uh, to have that uh, envision to envision that hopeful future uh, which can be difficult, especially in times like this. But there is hope, and um, I, I think that, especially working and and seeing the youth work on climate change is is really really hopeful, and um, has at least inspired me with a, a new sense of um, go get them. Okay, um, thank you. I'm now I'm going to hand it over to Yash. Hi, I'm Yash Kunkaria, a junior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. In a few minutes, we'll turn to your questions. 
If you have questions for our panelists, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at, to at City Club Youth. We'll work them in. Thank you. All right. Um, so I'll start looking at the questions. Um, the first one is, as we have seen reductions in emissions and the growth of wildlife within the clearly challenging COVID situation, what are some lasting positive outcomes that could come out of or be catalyzed by the crisis? I've been digging in a lot of data recently um, on, on how emissions have changed in light of the COVID pandemic and how uh, park access and uh, visits to parks have changed. And I think that for me, what I'm, uh, what I'm seeing is that we've seen a great drop in emissions uh, related to folks staying at home. Uh, and I have a stat here that I think is, is really interesting that it's um, a NASA satellite data showed that 30, a 30% drop in air pollution over Northeast, uh, the Northeast of, of the US during this time. We can't stop our economy uh, and make this happen uh, on an ongoing basis, but I, I do think to the point that Tori made earlier, like we can collectively act together and reduce emissions. Uh, I think too that um, something that I'm really excited to see is a, a focus on water and water access during this time. Everyone needs water to live. Um, and there's been work at both the local level and the state level to ensure that everyone has access to water during this time. That's uh, something that I hope will continue. And again, that park, park visitation, uh, it's, really, it's really up. And I, I do think that it shows us that everyone needs access to nearby nature everywhere. And uh, how can, it's inspiring me to think about how we can create that access. I've been looking at this as well, and so much of the same things, um, same things that Emily was talking about. But when I think about what might be durable sort of going forward, um, forums like this, right? Like where nobody had to drive anywhere. I think people are getting a lot more comfortable with remote technologies, which might drop our transportation emissions a bit, right? Um, if people don't feel like they have to fly across the country for meetings and things like that. Um, so I think that's one thing that I could imagine being more durable in the face of like as the economy gets ramped back up. Um, and then that the idea of people connecting to nature, I think is huge, right? The, the more people pe care about it and feel connected to it, the more they're going to take action on its behalf, I think. I, I think uh, the one thing I've noticed, is I'm seeing more wildlife. Um, that's what just got my attention in my window. Uh, I'm seeing more wildlife coming closer to my neighborhood and actually taking time to be in the neighborhood. I've been uh, noticing more people out, uh, more families, not necessarily just people, that are connecting or reconnecting and slowing down. Uh, the fact that people are buying more food that is... Um, fresh food as opposed to processed foods. Uh, that's a, a new thing and they're trying new recipes. I've been reading out a lot about that lately. And uh, to your point, people visiting parks uh, and the necessity of nature being nearby and access. Access is really key. There are a lot of places that are around that people don't realize is for them. And now people are starting to investigate and find out that, hey, this is right in my backyard. So that's really cool. All right, and then the next question is, there are skeptics who say that legal and political climate action um, on the table right now is too radical or not pragmatic. How do you combat that sentiment? <laughs> I, I guess my initial gut reaction is that there's an urgency here. We don't have a lot of time to, to combat climate change. and. Uh, I know that that's not necessarily going to convince a skeptic that we need to act on it quickly, but I don't think it should deter those of us who are engaged in the in the movement to fight climate change uh, to to not work as hard as we can and as quickly as we can. I say to the skeptic, the skeptic would stop being a skeptic when they become inconvenienced by something. 
Um, and it's inconvenient to not have clean drink, drinking water. It's inconvenient to not have fresh, clean air. It's inconvenient to not have clean soil to grow plants and, and vegetation that we need to eat along with the animals. Um, so I, I would say if they don't want any of those things and have access to those things, then it doesn't matter to them, but it matters to everyone else. Yeah, I go back to thinking about when Hurricane Sandy blew through New York City and the dramatic shifts in people's acknowledgement and recognition of climate change after that event, right? Like, it may feel dramatic, like the policies are dramatic, but having your home ripped out of the ground is dramatic, right? Having um, your home burned to the ground is dramatic. So I don't know which drama you want. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the next question is for Felina. Um, how many students and schools are involved in your program this year? Can you give some examples of actions and accomplishments and how do students become part of the Cleveland YSLP? Uh, there were, as of the Cleveland, as of the Sustainable Cleveland Summit, there were 103 participants of which I believe 85 were students. Of that, we've got 16 that registered for YSLP this year. Um, unfortunately, due to COVID-19, because we were going to actual locations, we have suspended it right now, um, meaning YSLP. However, I've been posting different things that are available for our students to participate online. Past accomplishments are students from St. Ignatius High School who participated, uh, started a program where they reduced um, they wanted to save the school money. So in order to save the school money, they did an assessment of where they could start. They started by going and looking at the amount of paper that was being wasted in their schools doing, um, during mass. They had something like five masses a week per, per, per grade. Um, when, they when they realized they could use a projector to project the agenda for the mass instead of passing out half sheets of paper, they were able to save something like five or $7,000 for the school and then they expanded that and uh, decided that they would actually utilize their, their boards. They have electronic boards in all the room. But one of the things they pointed out was that right next to the electronic boards, they uh, were putting papers. So they reduced the papers that they were using to post information and started using the electronic boards. Kennedy Smith, who is um, a member of your committee, uh, is also a participant in YSLP and she has a wonderful program that I can never get right. Um, I think it's Everyday Hero where she has, and Kennedy, you can chime in because I know you're on here. Um, she has a program where she lists different activities that students can do in order to be sustainable. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure. Um, and if you choose one that's already prescribed, then you can do that or you can load one to the website that she has to um, make suggestions for a new one. And there are countless ones. There's another, there's Kennedy. Um, there are, uh, there is another uh, student who started a cleanup in her community where they'd never had a cleanup done before. Uh, there's another student that collected markers. There's another one that collected books in order to give to less fortunate individuals. I mean, there are countless examples of different activities and, and they're all equally um, inspiring and motivating and encouraging for not only peers, but adults to see because they're, they're really well thought out and really well uh, and then implemented and, and they keep going. They don't just stop with one particular group of people. They share their knowledge and their experience and expertise. And to participate in YSLP, you just complete a registration um, you go through a little committee, myself and people in my office, uh, you participate in the summit, and then you spend your uh, school year just developing a project that you'd like to work on. So we'll be starting up again this fall, and it goes from the summit until um, you go away for, for summer, or until the end of your school year. Um, 2019 was the end of the 10-year Sustainable Cleveland Initiative. What's next? And is there a plan in the works for the next 10 years? Um, that's to be determined. Um, we, I know we are focusing more on our climate action plan and the racial equity tool. 
I'm sure there's more coming down the pike, but I am not privy to all the information that's being developed by the mayor and the chief of sustainability, but I was told to stay tuned to find out what else we're going to do regarding sustainable Cleveland, uh, sustainable Cleveland, sorry. Okay, and then for everyone, um, the people in power are more often than not, not people who are the most affected by climate change and environmental issues. So how do we educate these people without waiting for the situation to escalate so much that it affects them? I think personal stories conveyed to them um, help a lot, right? So I know when I meet somebody who's had an experience and they share that story with me, it affects me much more than when I read a statistic in a newspaper, right? So I think you have to have the combination, right? Like you need the data to sort of validate the personal stories, but the personal stories are what move people emotionally. And we know that people are much more likely to take action when they are emotionally moved rather than when they're rationally moved. So um, we have to tap people's emotions and whatever ways we can do to um, sort of activate the emotions of the people in power, I think we need to tap those. And I think that those stories uh, really, need to, really need to come from the authentic storytellers. Uh, and so, for me, I think that that means we need to be building a much more diverse and a much more inclusive environmental movement uh, that, that engages everyone, uh, but particularly engages uh, those folks who have those lived experiences. I think it goes back to, you know, we have a history of, uh, a, a history of environmental racism in a lot of ways. And, uh, we need to be working with those communities, particularly communities of color and lower income communities, to not only provide space, to not only provide kind of that seat at the table, but to really, um, to really give them the power to tell that story and to um, share their experiences to the point of storytelling and to the point of, um, again, building that, building that more inclusive and more diverse movement that can really move us towards a more equitable and just uh, environment. I think that we also should consider that the stories that are told also bridge language divides that exist between the way we communicate about the meaning of sustainability and what sustainability, the understanding of sustainability, because like just for example, sustainability means the word itself means so much to so many, you'll never get the same definition, no matter what circle you're traveling in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's more about helping people go from being consumers of resources to protectors and stewards of our natural and built environment. And when you convey that and get that part of the story understood, then the language that's used, people usually understand what's meant or the subtext behind what's being conveyed as opposed to just its sustainability. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say, you know, yeah, you reuse because reuse is a word that everyone understands as opposed to sustainability. Mm -hmm. I, think, oh, I, say, I wanted to highlight again, I think that the Cleveland Climate Action Plan did a really great job when it was engaging its residents to develop that shared language mm -hmm. and to really engage people from across um, the community to to talk about what the future looks like, uh, the future of our mm -hmm. environment, and not just uh, the, the jargony words that we tend mm -hmm. to use. Mm -hmm. There was one other idea I wanted to toss out there as well, which is the idea of a trusted messenger. Um, so again, people are more likely to listen to people who they trust. So figuring out if you aren't the one who's able to deliver the story, who is the trusted messenger that can serve as an intermediary Mm -hmm. um, that the person who is getting delivered to will actually listen to. I, I like, I totally agree with all of the, like the people need to have their authentic voices heard, but sometimes you need to have somebody who can bring that voice in a, in a way that, um, the person on the hearing end is willing to accept it as a trusted mm -hmm. voice. Yeah. And our next question is how does a young person help combat environmental racism? 
It's a great question. So um, I've been digging in uh, in a number of ways with, so OEC has a Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. And we're really focused on how do we, again, build this um, larger, diverse, inclusive movement uh, for the envir environmental movement that's putting that pressure on. And so I think it is um, recognizing uh, recognizing the history of um, of racist practices. So I, I think back, there's a, actually a city club forum uh, that was on the color of law and it was talking about, uh, you know, federal policies that were impacting, uh, impacting redlining, let's say, and uh, basically segregating our communities. And if you look at data over time, you know, those are the communities back to the trees that have, you know, some of the least, uh, least forested neighborhoods in Cleveland. And so how do we look at that history? How do we engage with communities um, and develop a shared vision together? Um, I think that that is, uh, it, it's difficult and it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult process. I, I, I don't know that I'm exactly getting to the, this is how we combat environmental racism, because I think that that is something that we're um, all working on in various ways. I'd say one of the ways youth can combat environmental racism is just to be youth. Youth aren't racist as a rule. Their parents and their grandparents are the ones who are passing that knowledge of what that means to them. So if we can inspire and encourage our young people to be young, to be fierce, to be advocates of the things that they believe in and to push the agendas of the things that matter for our communities and our planet without overlying uh, or overlaying our beliefs and our systems that we have onto them, we have a better chance. I think youth can also be allies to other groups, right? So. Um, I think about in the work I'm doing with Citizens Climate Lobby here in Cleveland, which isn't youth specific, but as a group, we don't look like the broader city of Cleveland. We're a pretty white group, quite frankly, but we've been trying to actively reach out to other groups like the Cleveland Black Health Coalition and the NAACP's environmental and um, climate justice group to say, how can we support your work, right? Like, what can we do for you? Um, because I think we need to be allies with each other. But I think that goes back to your point too that you made earlier, Tori, and that was that um, youth need to use their voices and be present and come and sit at the table and be in the room and we need to listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of listening and learning um, mm -hmm. related to this. Mm -hmm. Um, and this question is for Tori. So climate issues are often difficult to grasp because their, effect, their effects can't always be seen. Can you expound on what you described happening to Lake Erie and our coast and what's being done right now to save the coastline? Yeah, so this was happening over the winter in um, Geneva on the lake, which is east on the lake. Yes, it's east, sorry. Um, my east-west is not always good. And basically, normally the lake freezes over um, and that layer of ice on the surface of the lake actually protects the shoreline from the wave action that comes in and erodes the shoreline. So Geneva on the lake has a pretty steep, like abrupt cliffs, or not cliffs, but like bluffs that drop off, but they're like mud and sand. And so with the increased wave action that was happening over the winter, this is my understanding of it, and I might not be getting this perfectly from a scientific perspective, but um, without the ice there to sort of slow the waves down and protect that shoreline, the waves were washing in harder and basically eroding that sandy, muddy mix off of the, the bluffs. Um, and a lot of people have homes that look over the lake there, right? It's like great real estate in terms of views and things like that, but when your shoreline maybe you had 30 feet between your house and where that bluff was. And now the shoreline has eroded and eroded and like that um, bluff is wearing away and washing into the lake. And suddenly you've got five feet left between your house and the bluff. And then your house is on the cliff and then it's tipped off the cliff, right? 
Um, so I, there were some places in the Geneva on the lake that actually lost up to 45 feet of horizontal distance from the bluff back to the homes. Um, so that was what was happening there. Uh, and then this is a policy question. So if you are for carbon reduction by a carbon tax, would you be willing to impose a carbon import tax based on carbon content? Yes. <laughs> um, I, so the work we do with Citizens Climate Lobby, and this is separate from my work with Hathaway Brown, right? These are two totally separate parts of my life, but separate, I guess, in job description, but not philosophically for me at some level. But I have to just make that clear that they are separate pieces of work. Um, Citizen, Citizens Climate Lobby advocates a particular approach to, at the federal level, to solving climate change, which is to put a fee on carbon. We call it a carbon fee or carbon tax. Mm -hmm. But they also have something called a carbon border adjustment, which basically says any goods that are getting imported into the U.S. that are not coming from countries that also have a carbon tax should have that tax applied to them at the border. But any goods that are getting exported from the U.S. that are going to a country that does not have a carbon tax will have that tax refunded at the border to keep our goods cost competitive in the global marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, so I would support that. I think this is when I would defer to my policy experts at the OEC, so. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I think one of the biggest concerns with a carbon import tax is the effect it has on, its, on our economy, which leads me to our next audience question, which is how can we try to appeal to those who believe economic prosperity is more important than taking immediate action? Um, I would actually amend that question to how do we appeal to those who believe that immediate economic prosperity is more important than taking action? Our environment and our economy are, uh, are, are not separate things. <laughs> They're together. And I think that uh, we really need to be taking immediate actions um, to not only improve the health of our communities, but to also to help boost those economies. Tori, it looked like you wanted to jump in on that. I was just thinking, yeah, the same thing, that they're not separate and it, the economic impacts actually are being felt now. So Absolutely. it seems to be a question of future, um, future versus present in terms of impacts. Um, you know, you see places like Blackwater Investment, which is one of the largest investment managers in the world. The, they put out a letter every year to different, like that the investment bank managers, I think it is, read. And the entire letter was around their strategy around mitigating climate risk in their investments. Um, and we're seeing that over and over again in a lot of different sectors, like the insurance industry is being hit profoundly hard by the impacts of climate change right now. Um, we know that our um, our Navy, right, is saying like we're at risk of losing major naval bases because, it, and these aren't necessarily hugely in the future kinds of risks. So um, I guess I would argue that it's not a future versus present equation anymore. It's like a now and now equation that we need to look at. Well, and, and I would say that it's really, the, one of the challenges that I always find is when someone pulls one aspect of what makes sustainability, the three pillars work, out of context or out of the equation or highlights it too much, it disrupts the entire system. So when you take the economy or economics and you highlight that and make it the forefront, then what happens to the equity and the environment portions of, of what sustains us? If the forefront is what is ruling us, I think we can see by the way we're experiencing things now that there's a whole lot of weight put on finances or on the money aspect, but the environment is taking a hit and poor people and, and black and brown people in terms of the equity are suffering. So it's really a now, now is a time to try to balance out everything so that you have equity environment and economy all working in tandem. Mm -hmm. how, can the C how can CMSD Cleveland Metro Schools be most effectively engaged in citywide sustainability pursuits, especially in red line neighborhoods? 
my colleague has a daughter named Sanjana. So my colleague Deepa has a daughter named Sanjana. And Sanjana has this uh, project that she's working on to help collect books in her school from students who have taken classes that don't no longer need the books and maybe the supplemental uh, things like calculators and whatnot and provide them to poorer schools to help them. I think that's a really great way to, to share resources and, and one of the examples because she'd like to work with CMSD in order to make that happen. Kennedy Smith, who's on the committee, I believe that her idea of, of helping people understand sustainability through her project and taking those ideas and, and working across the aisle, so Hathaway Brown or um, other schools. Uh, Kennedy, I forgot what school you go to, Hawken, I think. Um, but Hawken could then lead the way to help their peers in other schools like CMSD understand sustainability, sustainable practices, how to implement things, and, and how to sustain programming um, from peer to peer. So that would be another way that CMSD kids and other schools could work together. And then where do you see Cleveland in five to 10 years with sustainability efforts and how has the city changed? Um, I see the city being leaner and greener um, because I look at the, the last 10 years of where we were and where we've come to, how our waterways are cleaner, how we have a lot more bike paths um, and a lot more access to parks, a lot more parks popping up in neighborhoods. Um, I, I see it getting stronger and, and having much more racial diversity and a stronger equity platform so that people of all races and genders and classes work better together to share resources. I'm really and hopeful policy. on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm really, I'm really hopeful on that too. I think over the last 10 years, I've seen such an interest in, um, in protecting the environment that we have and growing the environment that we have um, and making sure that we have the policies in place uh, to protect, um, to protect, protect the environment and to fight climate change. I hope to see those continue to grow. Um, and I hope to see uh, not only the neighborhood work happening here in my backyard, but you know, down the street at City Hall too. And um, to, to continue to th grow that movement. Cleveland uh, was known at one point in time for the, the fire on our river. And boy, have we come so, so far since that time. We've come even further in the last 10 years. and. Um, I think especially with, uh, with our youth involved in this and really those discussions related to equity happening across the city, I'm really hopeful that we can create a healthier environment for all Clevelanders. And I have to say this uh, just for Kathy and Kristen, I also see a million trees planted. Um, all right, so I'm going to hand this off to Sam Lee. Thank you for being here. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam Lee, a senior at Hawkins School and the City Club Youth Forum Council President. Thanks for joining us for today's Youth Forum featuring Emily Baja, Communications Director for the Ohio Environmental Council, Tori McMillan, Director of the Center for Sustainability at Hathaway Brown, and Felina A. Selden, Outreach and Education Liaison in the Office of Sustainability for the City of Cleveland. Our moderator is Jessica Chang, a junior at Hathaway Brown and a member of the Youth Forum Council who did a great job. And City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T with additional support from the Char and Chuck Fowler Found Family Foundation and the William M. Weiss Foundation. In addition, City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, and PNC with additional support from Bank of America. The Center for Community Solutions, St. Luke's Foundation, and Thompson Hine, and many more generous members, sponsors, and donors who are listed on our website at cityclub.org. Thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org donate. That brings us to the end of today's forum and also the last forum of the Youth Council for this year. And also that means it's my last forum as part of the Youth Forum Council. 
So I would both like to thank everyone for joining us and thanks to all the youth forum members for all their hard work this year. I really appreciate you guys. And now City Club CEO Dan Malthrow will ring the gong to close out the forum. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Jessica. And thank you, panelists. It is, has been a really wonderful conversation and our forum is now adjourned.